Well, I don't know, Westmount, about you, but when you come to this place on Sunday mornings, out from that place, you talk about the nearness of God. I don't know what on earth right now compares to the gathered assembly singing from the bottom of their soul to their creator. I pray you're encouraged every week. You will go out in a few hours back to that place. There is no hope like in this place. And I pray that you carry those expressions of joy and hope into the week. What a treasure it is. How could anyone want to neglect this? To gather together to sing and remember why we have hope beyond this life. I invite you now to take your Bible, beloved, and turn to the book of Exodus. We transition our worship from singing and the Lord's table. Now we will go to the Word of God, Exodus chapter 28. If you're visiting with us again, I extend along with the men a warm welcome to you and invite you to take the copy of God's Word, maybe that's in front of you if you don't have one with you, and the racks in front of you. You can take that follow-along. Second book of the Bible, Exodus 28th chapter of that book. That's our our home for today. Last week, of course, then, we were in chapter 27, which, remember, contained elements of sacrifice. There was, we looked at the bronze altar, the place of sacrifice. Then we looked at the courtyard, the public view of it. Remember, in public view for all to see. Those showed us the necessity of sacrifice, the necessity of sacrifice, and its prescribed context. This week, as we turn over now to chapter 28, we will now see the sacrifice delegates, if you will, the priests. More broadly, we will be looking at, not just this week, over the next two weeks, the priesthood. And that would be the priests themselves, indeed, but more their garments, their duties, their purpose. These are the ones... The sacred office declared, as we'll see by God, these are the ones, the priesthood, who are charged with standing for the people before God. They're the ones in that administration that were brought nearer to God, and they're charged with standing for the people. That's important. For in representation on behalf of the people before God's presence. Now, saying that, it is helpful to note as we begin The notion of a priesthood in some form has existed from really the earliest of times. Priesthood is not just a church thing or a Christian thing or an ancient church thing. It's existed for all times. The need for priesthood, again, is not just an Israelite concept, but a human concern. Priesthood institutions in history that span civilizations, Go through peoples, you see them in all religions. Provide evidence that humanity, here it is, humanity is keenly aware of its need for a mediator. It tells us the presence of priesthood everywhere tells us humanity is very aware that they need mediation. They need it. The need for someone of their kind to act on their behalf before a divine. Ingrained into mankind is the understanding that man needs intercession, needs it. 
In fact, well before the law and this institution in Exodus, we encountered, remember him, Jethro. Yes, he was Moses' father-in-law, indeed that, but he was also, chapter 18, verse 1, the priest of Midian. That's the Midianites, not the Israelites. That's a pagan people with a different belief system, but with a mediator. God's people were no different before the law. They, too, had their intermediaries. Where the intermediary role seems to have been accorded to, and this is what we glean from Scripture, before this, chapter 28, the intermediary role or priestly role seems to have been accorded to household heads. We saw this last week. Do you remember with Noah? Genesis 8, making an altar, offering sacrifice. The patriarchs, we looked at them, a survey in Genesis. And of course, Job, do you remember, not just for himself, presumably, but for his children. In the first chapter, fifth verse, Job. Now, with the establishment of a tabernacle, which is an earthly dwelling place for God, the need for intermediaries is paramount. God will dwell among them. God will dwell before them. Thus, the question now is, who will stand before God? Who will stand in His presence? Yahweh addresses that in the following chapters. This, look at it, chapter 28, and then the next one, chapter 29, you can see deal with all matters of the priesthood, and we're going to get into that over the next two weeks. So much good revelation here. In fact, the opening verses of this one chapter alone are just brimming. So let's read them to open our time, and then we're going to ask the Lord's blessing on our study. Look with me, chapter 28, verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill. They may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege this morning to look at your word, to open it, to read it, and study it, and by your grace apply it. God, enable us to do that this morning as we do look to understand and we do look to put into our hands and our feet and to our minds and to the weeks ahead of us, Lord, all that you are speaking to us through your word. So help us to do that today, we beg and pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We will cover the whole chapter today, but to give you a bit of a roadmap for our time, we'll actually spend the bulk of our time in these opening verses. Our first point this morning is found in verse 1, and there we find the people of the priesthood. The people of the priesthood. Let's consider again verse 1. Let's look at them. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Who are they? Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. God, of course, back in Egypt commanded, do you remember his command to Pharaoh, let my people go. 
Remember, he said that, but he said that, and he gave a purpose for that. It wasn't just let them go. He said this, Exodus 7.16, Let my people go, you remember this, that they may serve me in the wilderness. That was the general service, a general service to God, to worship him and to live by his standard. And that's the call for all of God's people. In one sense, it still is. That general service, that overall service. All people, as we've seen in Exodus, by way of the ten words, the law, all people are called to that type of service to God. However, here we see people within God's people called to a specific service. It's a very specific service. It is people, as Yahweh says, the middle of verse 1, that will serve me as priests. You see that? People that will serve God as priests. Let's zone in on that word. Look at it with me. That name, priests. We have a lot of understanding and experience and presuppositions with that word. So let's zone in on what the actual original is saying here. The root of that word, priest, in one main sense means this, to present oneself. That's really getting to the origins of that word, to present oneself, or more pointedly, to present oneself on behalf of another. See how that is coming together. It also has a range to include such derivative meaning that would include an explicit active sense. And what are we talking about? It can mean preparation. So it can mean all of that self or all of that sense, presentation. But in the presentation, there's preparation. That's in this word as well. So that would be the service bound up in the title here. Preparation and presentation. And this makes sense, and we're going to see this. The priest, as commentator John McKay says, and let me quote him, is divinely designated as one who's permitted to approach God on behalf of others. Hear that again. Is divinely designated as one who is permitted to approach God on behalf of others. That's really good because it rightly articulates something that I would submit to you, maybe you, society certainly, bristles against. And what is that? The reality that, yes, mankind needs permission to approach God. Mankind needs the kind of nearness Jeremy took us through this morning, needs permission, certainly in the old economy. We are not fit. We are not worthy. We are not good enough to approach God. Who are we then? We are garden exiles that have forfeited the privilege and position of God's presence. That's truly who we are. To believe we are fit enough or right enough to approach God on our own is nothing short of folly, says God's word. No, we need intercession. Listen, why? God is holy. God is perfect. God is pure light. God's presence is so utterly perfect and so blazing with glory That approach would be, it's not the same, but in the long lines of you approaching the sun of our solar system. And you know what would happen to you as you get closer. That's the lesser. Approaching God would be the greater. Israel needed permitted ones then, listen, and hearing that you recognize not only permitted ones, they needed permitted ones by the mercy of God. Is that not true? By God's mercy to protect and allow and permit those to come near. Approach by mercy. And that's ultimately it. Especially for Israel. 
before the cross, before the great high priest, his veil torn, needed mercy to approach God. And mercy was needed for those designated ones that would hold special service, that special office. And so there were priests. So who were these people that were priests? Well, the first five, look at them, are mentioned here, the priestly forefathers, if you will. Back to verse 1. Bring near Aaron. Of course, Aaron is Moses' brother. Aaron and his sons, who were Nadab and Abihu, the first pair, and then Eleazar and Ithamar. You might ask, why are they given in pairs? Well, we don't know, but one clue might be what happens to the first pair, Nadab and Abihu, in Leviticus 10. In fact, we get a demonstration very vividly that there is a way you can approach God wrongly. And you can look at what happens to them in Leviticus 10. Now remember, Moses and Aaron were from the tribe of Levi. Jeremy also mentioned this morning there were Levites that did the role of the priests. And we learned that all the way back in chapter 2, both Moses and Aaron, both their dad and mom, were Levites. You learned that in Exodus. They come from the Levite tribe. And from Aaron's line then, starting at this point, all the Levites that would come after Aaron or from Aaron would become the priests of Israel. That's the institution here. Levites and market only Levites, no other men. The office and the activity of priests was reserved exclusively for this tribe. That's clear in the law. Clear in the law. Just Levites. By the way, King Saul, who was not a Levite, he was a Benjaminite, he learned that, do you remember the hard way, in 1 Samuel 13. He thought because he was king in some way, he could offer sacrifices. And we know famously what happened to him when Samuel showed up and basically said to him, judgment is upon you for taking that upon yourself, which is reserved for the priests. So why Levites? Why that tribe and not, say, the Asherites or the Reubenites? Why the Levites? The answer to that question, the correct theological answer is this. We don't know. Right? We, we, we don't know. We don't know. Yes, sometimes, oftentimes, the answer is, beloved, we don't know. God offers us in his word no particular reason. We see them doing many things, and they're called out. But no stated purpose why Levites are not Asherites as priests. Why Levites, not Reubenites as priests. However, what is very clear, and it's crystal clear in this verse, verse 1, about the priests is that he chose them. You see that? God chose them. What doesn't transpire here, and you can look closely in chapter 28, what you won't find is an open forum. You won't see Yahweh on Sinai say, okay, okay, my people, hush, hush, settle down. Who wants to be my priest? There's no open forum. We love open forums, right? We love equal opportunity. But, but God says, Aaron, is my priest. He chooses. In his sovereignty, he chooses. Says Aaron will be. Listen, God chose Aaron as he did Abraham, Moses, David, the apostles, and Paul. Do you remember that? All of them chosen by who? God. None of those, and certainly not Aaron here, and we'll see that very clearly later in chapter 32. All, or I should say, none of those were found 
picture bouncing up and down with a pick me, none signing up for the office, none saying, I'm the guy, I'm your priest. No, you don't see that. You don't see that with Abraham. You certainly don't see it with Paul. You don't see it with Moses. We saw him trying to resist the call. You don't see it with David. You don't see that. That's not the way God does it. He's sovereign. His will be done and his will alone. Again, these men aren't coming to God laying out why they should be picked. They're not laying their resumes before Almighty. No, what the Word shows and presents and illustrates over and over and over again is that God chooses sovereignly. He chooses Aaron and his sons. He chose to be priests for Israel. So who are the people of the priesthood? They are Levites from Aaron, chosen by God as the representative tribe, to serve before God as priests on behalf of Israel. That's who the people of the priesthood are. Secondly, let's look at the presentation with the priesthood. Let's consider verses 2 and 3. Look at it with me. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. God does not just call out priests from among the people, but he also commands, look at it, specific garments to be worn by them. Yes, God, in the details. Holy garments, look at that in verse 2. Holy garments means, as we've learned, set-apart garments. These are not ordinary garments. Garments of God, completely for him. Now, before we look at each of the garments, all six of them, a couple things. First, at the end of verse 2, God calls Moses, and thus Israel, to make holy garments. Look at it, verse 2, for glory and for beauty. That describes the purpose of these garments. Why special clothes? Why these specific clothes that we'll see? Why the materials? The text tells us, this is the answer, for glory and for beauty. The practical folks among us say, that's it, no function, just glorious, just beautiful. Oh yes, they very much have a function, but here it is, beloved, just not the one we associate with it today. These are not garments, but they're holy garments. As such, these garments are for the ones with the express purpose of preparing and presenting in God's presence. Garments that reflect reality, and that's the disassociation we have today. Garments that reflect what one is claiming and what one is doing. More than functional, beloved, listen to me. These are essential, the very base, we would say, garments. And that's the very least. Now, saying that, secondly, we need to step back for a moment and consider something much bigger than clothes. Let's take a look. Almost 20 years ago, exactly, I was in Florence, Italy, and I visited this. That is the Domo di Firenze. Sounds pretty fancy, right? Sounds fancy. It means this, Florence Cathedral. That's what that means. That's it. And that's because it has a simple name that sounds fancy, right? It's because there are cathedrals in towns all over Italy and Europe and Asia. You will see stuff like this, not necessarily to this scale. We're going to get to that in a moment. But you will see grand buildings like this. Massive cathedrals litter the landscape, particularly in Western Europe. All of them big. 
All of them, here it is, built for God. That's right, look at it. History is filled with such structures. And listen, pre-Reformation here. I'm sure some Catholic bells are going off, but I want you to know pre-Reformation we're talking about here. I want you to look at this cathedral for a moment. It is 89,340 square feet. The height of that dome, do you see the dome, is 376 feet. It is the fifth tallest dome in the world. The first stone was laid on September the 9th, 1296, well before Luther. The final exterior finish was completed, get this, 600 years later in 1887. The presentation of the Domo di Firenze, I have to tell you, beloved, is being there, is breathtaking. It is absolutely stunning. That doesn't even do it any justice. To be up close, to put your hand on the marble, to see the vivid colors, it's breathtaking. And listen to me, I was an unbeliever when I saw the Domo, and I know what God did in my heart seeing that, roaming around the globe as an unbeliever. Now, why this aside? Why do we take a few moments to say that? Because look at it. We know of no such presentation today. This is foreign to us. This is the stuff that you might see in a Hollywood movie one time because they need a special set. That's it. We know of no such presentation today. Look, we have massive buildings and skyscrapers, but they're very secular and very ugly. They reflect our culture, don't they? Yes, we have splendid clothes, but they're pulled out for what? Red carpets. We have lost, listen to me, we have lost the presentation that is proportionate to presence. Can I say that again? We have lost the presence, right? Or the presentation that is in line, that is proportionate, that reflects presence. We've lost it. We know nothing of it anymore. One of my sons told me, and I thought this was really insightful, he said, you know what, we could build that. In fact, we could build it in much quicker than 600 years. But we don't. We have other things to build. Other monuments to men. Glorious and beautiful presentations. Listen, buildings or clothes. And I do that so you know I'm not picking on clothes. It's all things. All things in God's creation. Buildings, clothes, whatever, done beautifully and gloriously for the Lord, listen to me, is scarce today, is it not? It's gone. It's all function. It's all get by for the Lord. Yet, Westmount, what we must not miss here is the glory and the beauty embedded and woven through God's law. Do you see it? God chooses priests and He commands their garments I had a moment this week to think, I can't even imagine in this economy if God was prescribing what to wear. We already know how that goes in the best of times. Can you just imagine? And here he prescribes the clothing and says, this is what's worthy of me in detail. And we're going to see detail in a moment. God, with very minute prescription, incredible detail. Yes, the priest's clothes as they serve him in his presence matter to God. Beloved, they matter to God. Details matter to God. 
And details, here it is, not just any details, not just functional details, not just your details, details that are objectively glorious and beautiful. They are grand and majestic, as we'll see, like the tabernacle construction itself. One more on this point, and we've indeed seen this before. God does not prescribe something that he does not first provide. Right? We've seen this before. He doesn't prescribe something that's unreachable. I can give you the Domo example, right? He, he would never say build it, and you can't build something so majestic. Here with the clothes, they have everything they need. Look at verse 3. Speak to all the skillful. That is the ones, God says, that I have filled with a spirit of skill. Do you see that? God says, I have given it, use it. I've given it, use it. Now, we'll return to this idea of using the skill that God gives in chapter 31. We're going to meet two very skilled men from God. The point here is that for these glorious and beautiful clothes, God has given skill and material to make them. Do you see that? You have both pieces. You have the material and you have the ability, and God says, go make. Here are the command to craft them as such. This is the required presentation with the priesthood, holy garments made for glory and for beauty. So Psalm 132 verse 9 says, Let your priests be clothed with what? Righteousness. That's because they're serving God in His presence. And let's digest that. If special presence calls for special presentation, then holy presence demands holy presentation. By the way, the end of verse 3 confirms that. God says the skillful must do this. Why? Look at it, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. Consecrate's a word we've seen before, to set apart, here for special service and purpose. And we'll really be into consecration of the priests next week in chapter 29. These special garments, and we just note it now, are required here for Aaron. These holy garments, these set-apart garments, these garments that will be consecrated They're needed, they're necessary, they're based, prerequisite for Aaron to serve as priest. There's nothing optional here, beloved. And again, so much I feel often these days bristles against what we feel and what we've been taught. You can't imagine Aaron here saying, you know what, that ephod, that's just not me. You know, I don't look good in that turban. No, you will not see that I say that, beloved, because that's us. It's all about us. That is the presentation with the priesthood. To serve as priest is to dress as priest. So, what about the dress? What about the garments? How glorious? How beautiful? Well, let's look at these pieces of clothing. That's what's left in this chapter. And our next point, the pieces for the priesthood. The pieces for the priesthood. Look at verse 4. These are the garments that they shall make. A breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. You see that there? God identifies six pieces of clothing to be made. We're going to look at each of them. Six pieces. And these pieces, they make up the bulk of the remaining chapter. We're going to also consider the fact that these pieces, the six you'll see here, before verse 40, these pieces were especially for the high priest. And what do we mean by that? The high priest was one like Aaron. You see how Aaron is set apart even amongst his sons in his line. 
And Aaron would represent one of a continual line of high priests. And what that means is that there would be one priest of priests designated one day a year on that day of atonement, Leviticus 16, the one that was to enter God's presence. And hence, this is the garb that he would wear. The high priest of priests. In order to enter the Holy of Holies, this was the necessary clothing. And consider that. Again, as Jeremy reminded us this morning, to draw near to God's presence, priest, the one going into the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, this is what you will look like. Incredible. The other priests still ministered in the holy place and courtyard with the sacrifices. There's still a ministry for them. Lots of that needing. There were still daily sacrifices. And actually, we'll see their garments shortly. They come in the final few verses of this chapter. Garments for them too. But for the inner place, that of God's presence, for the one going there, the high priest, there were special pieces of clothing necessary as commanded by God. Let's look now at the introduction to the materials used. Verse 5. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Once again, very familiar materials. Materials we have seen with the tabernacle, right? You've seen these before. The very best construction called for before God. This is the very best. And again, as we'll see with these pieces, like the tabernacle pieces, it will be self-evident as we read their description. So let's look first at the ephod. Look at verse 6, the ephod. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. An ephod, if you're wondering what an ephod is, is a piece of outer clothing. It almost, think of like an apron, but goes on both sides. It, just a piece that draped about the waist, maybe a little below, and it really just had shoulder straps, so one on this side and then one on that side. Flaps, they hung, no waist and no sleeves, only attached at the shoulders. That was an ephod. Now, at the shoulders, saying that, and pick this up, where the two pieces were fastened, right? The two pieces, the front and the back, would be fastened together. Look at this. This is just speaking of that joining shoulder. Verse 9. You shall take two onyx stones... And engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone, so that'd be for one shoulder. And the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth, the other shoulder. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod, as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord, on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. Note that on each shoulder of the ephod will be an onyx stone, one on each side, and on those stones will be what? The names of the sons of Israel. In other words, Jacob's sons on the shoulders. These would be Jacob's sons, that would eventually become tribes, right? From Reuben to Benjamin, first sons, and they became tribes. 
And these are the sons whose birth and order are described in Genesis 29 to 35. You get that account in Genesis. Again, these sons that would become tribes, they came to represent all of Israel, right? And that's the key. You, you know that and become familiar with it, the tribes of Israel representing all of Israel. So we need to note this, that on the ephod here, in stone, on the shoulders, all Israel is represented. Key. And at the end of verse 12, we're told Aaron wears them, and you get purpose here, for remembrance. So as Aaron is entering the holy place by way of remembrance, he's not just standing for him. In remembrance, he has all 12 tribes entering with him. Now it is very important to see that because in the next piece, the breast piece, we'll also observe Aaron's wearing of the names of Israel, but very differently, and we'll get to that in a moment. Yet for both, don't miss the picture here. Aaron wears the representation. That's the image. He wears the representation in what he is wearing. That's the key. In this piece, embedded in stone on the shoulders are the names of the people, the tribes that he stands for. So that's one, the ephod. Two, next look at it, the breast piece, verse 15. You shall make a breast piece of judgment In skilled work, in the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled a span, its length, and a span, its breadth. The breast piece was made, you see it there, of the same materials and style even of the ephod. So this would have been a garment, not on both sides, but really just on the front side, but smaller. Look at it. It was a square piece of cloth that was folded over, and it was affixed to the ephod. You see that? Just sitting here on the front. It was square, the text says, verse 16, and doubled. So when you're thinking of the breast piece, think of like a folded pouch or a folded pocket that sat on the front of the ephod. And by the way, its size was given as a span, We're learning about these ancient measures like a cubit, here a span, what was that? Well, again, not having access to the things we do, they needed something handy, and of course they had their hand. And from the pinky to the thumb, just a general extension, that width, about nine inches, that's what a span would be. You had the cubit, and you had the span, and here it's measured in a span, nine inches, a nine inch by nine inch front pouch. We consider now that adorning the front of this pocket was this. Look at verse 17. We continue. This is on the front of the pocket. You shall set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. The second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. Interesting there, you see on the front pocket we have stones. In fact, gems more specifically, precious gems. And they line in rows the front of the breastpiece. Four rows to be exact. And once again, we see gems, precious stones, engraved with the sons of Israel's names, their tribe names. Their purpose on this piece here will be given in a moment, so we'll come back to that. First, let's read the rest of the construction of this piece. This is just the rest of the breast piece. Continue in verse 22. You shall make for the breast piece 
twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And you shall make the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of its shoulder, two shoulder pieces of the ephod, and its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. Incredible detail for the rest of this breastpiece. Don't miss this. Look at it. It may be a small piece, but look, it's no less glorious and beautiful, is it? God's sparing no details with this nine inch by nine inch pocket. Look at how it's fastened on, hung with twisted chains and rings of what? Pure gold. Pure gold. Its bands, verse 27, are skillfully woven to the ephod, so not to come loose, verse 28. Westmount, if it sounds like I'm repeating myself with the glory and the beauty, it's because God's word is. God's word, glory, beauty, glory, beauty, every detail. The finest materials in construction, like the curtains, the veils, the tabernacle, the clothes. Because these pieces, why the glory, why the beauty, they will be in God's presence. Now hold it there for a moment. Keep that in mind. Entry to God's presence. We've seen the names of the sons of Israel on the ephod to remember. And here we see them again, by the way. The twelve tribes of Israel on the breastpiece. And to what end? Look at verse 29. It says this, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So not just remembrance, but judgment. Much debate over what this means. I will tell you that up front. Some connected to what we're about to see with a method of discernment. You'll see those two stones in a moment. But many others would take this as judgment connected to what Aaron is doing. Not only remembering the names going in to the Holy of Holies, but remembering what needs to be done to the people that he represents, what they deserve, and what he bears as he goes in. Why? Well, the names of those God's people, here it is, justly deserve God's judgment. That's what they're due. He's bearing the names of people that are unfit to enter the presence of God. Yet remember now, one act he was called to do on the Day of Atonement. Take the blood, do you remember, of the young bull and sprinkle it where? On the mercy seat. The mercy seat as a representation of how one could enter God's presence by the mercy of God. There, bearing the names and the judgment of God's people on his heart, we'll see soon, in mind, on his forehead, But in both ways, as he bears the names of the people that he represents, he does so in mercy. And yes, that high priest, we need to remember this. We remember God's word for God's people of all time. A different way, but the same principle. Needing a high priest, we do. We need a high priest for God's presence. 
and we sung of our great high priest. We learn of our great high priest, and you know your great high priest. Our great high priest that bears our name in judgment before God's presence, you know your great high priest. But he didn't just bear our name because we were due judgment. What did he bear in God's presence? He bore judgment itself, did he not? He bore the judgment that we are due. Shedding blood as an offering for mercy for his people. Not the blood of bulls or goats like here, and it would be in the Levitical economy. But this great high priest shed his own blood. As we read in Hebrews 5, Gary took us there earlier, the days of what? His flesh. That lamb, Jesus, our great high priest, offered up prayers and supplications, Hebrews says, for us. For us. Like the high priest of old, Christ bore our penalty on his heart, as here it is, both high priest and sacrifice. Jesus paid it all that way. And we must never lose sight of that sacrifice by our high priest. This is a great reminder for us here as we learn of the priest. One more piece to mention with the breast piece here in verse 30. Look at it with me. And in the breast piece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Regularly. On the pouch, we see here, are the twelve gems. But in the pouch are two stones. So note that. Four rows of gems on the front. In the pocket, two stones. What are they? The text calls them the Urim and the Thummim. Those words mean, this is what they mean, the light and the perfections. They're fitting for stones that later would be used by priests for light and direction or light and discernment, light and judgment. The Urim and the Thummim were stones used, it seems, later, and this is important. Later on, they're not very prominent in the law and in the Old Testament. And it would seem to be because they were used later downstream for gaining discernment from God. And that's very important People want to point to these stones and say, see, we just need to cast lots today. But these were not dice and they were not magic stones. They were guiding light brought before God. And note that if we say anything about them, they were brought before God. That's important. And not only brought before God, but after what? After able men were given to lead and judge. Chapter 18. After clear direction in the law is given, chapter 20 to 23. After even obedience is checked in chapter 24. After all of those and only after that, the Urim and the Thummim would be used. Of course, many would still ask, well, how were they used? And I think very fittingly, we're not told. You know what we would do if we were told exactly how they'd be used, right? You know exactly what you would see in every Christian bookstore. Because that's what we want to do. We don't like the revealed means before that. We don't like those, the able men leading in chapter 18. We don't like the law in chapter 20 to 23. And we certainly don't like obedience, chapter 24. We want to skip to the magic. We seldom 
of understanding of all the means of discernment God has already given to us, and they're blessed means, are they not? The wisdom of many counselors, the word of God. We don't know how they were used, but we do know it was seldom and only for this administration in time. And that's also key. This is just for Israel. Very similar to the, the gifts in the first century church, the sign gifts. Used for a specific time, for a specific purpose and place. Basically, by the way, this usage disappears. If you go after the exile, it disappears. And in history, not only in God's word, but in the Bible, it's, it's gone. So that's the breast piece with its pieces. A lavish and loaded piece of clothing, again, like a pocket for the priest. Next, there's the robe. Look at verse 31. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in garment, in a garment, so that it may not tear. On its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem, with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. The robe would be worn under the ephod, and you think of a classic robe, and that would be right. It was one piece down to the knees, as we would know it. However, this robe here was sleeveless, with only openings for the head and arms, and had openings for that to go through. Most notable on the robe was what decorated the hem of the garment. You see it there. First, pomegranates. Pomegranates were a prized fruit back then. And interesting, I was reading about this this week. Prized not just because they tasted good. Many of us still love pomegranates. But to the ancients, it had a beautiful shape and texture. Now we see pomegranates with that greenish red. They loved that back then, and they prized that blended hybrid color for the pomegranate. But not only that, on the hem with pomegranates were bells, golden bells. Why? Well, look at verse 35. It shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. And when he comes out, here it is, so that he does not die. The bells tinkling as the high priest moved in service would have heightened the scene. Remember, they could not see inside, but they could hear what was going on inside. They would hear Aaron moving around, of course, history we can't confirm that in God's word, often was the documenting that, that they would tie ropes and different bells and different instruments to make sure that the high priest didn't drop dead in God's presence. And this may be so. The bells would help, and we have a clue in verse 35, that that may have been part of it to ensure that he was still alive. He was still, and mark this, fit for God's presence with all the preparation there. He had on every garment, every prescription, every preparation, you still heard the bells. Making all those in the courtyard aware, a meeting was taking place. And here it is. When they heard the bells, they knew a meeting was taking place for them. We've all been anxious for meetings that have something to do with us, right? And you want word? Just imagine hearing those bells. Would Yahweh accept the atonement? Would Yahweh accept what is being offered to him? That's the robe. Next, the turban. We read first about a key piece on the turban, verse 36, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. 
The turban there was headgear for the high priest. And affixed, and this is interesting, the very first detail of the turban is what is affixed to it. Look at it. Affixed a plate of pure gold. And of course, we cannot miss the inscription right on Aaron's forehead. In gold was this, holy to the Lord. You know, one imagines as you get to this point in the garments, the weight already, and I don't mean just of the clothes, but I mean of having Israel on his shoulders and having Israel in judgment on his heart. And then he puts a turban on that says, holy to the Lord. The weight of entering God's presence, where the bells served as audible reminders, the gold plate was a visual reminder. Of note is the fact that if you were to read the prophet Zechariah, you have those two things coming together again. Zechariah 14, verse 20, it says this, On that day, in context there, the 14th chapter of Zechariah, is the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ. That coming day of the Lord, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses this, Holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. Note verse 38, another reminder, by the way, that Aaron, the high priest, would bear the guilt, look at it, of that not holy. Holy to the Lord, but bearing the guilt of those that are not holy. That was the high priest and what he brought in. The final two garments of the high priest were inner garments. We've been looking exclusively to this point at the outer garments. We end the high priest with two inner garments. We find them in verse 39, and in fact, they're both there. Verse 39, you shall weave the coat and checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. Bit of overlap there, but you see the two new pieces. One is the coat. Now that sounds very outer to us, right? The coat, but this actually is like a tunic. Think tunic for the coat. Tunic was a garment that most people had back then. You see Jesus refer to this very everyday like in the Sermon on the Mount. It was a very protective piece of clothing, a very necessary piece. Hence the priests had it too. Now of course all had a coat and tunic, but not all had one made like this. Fine linen. Look at it in verse 39. Again, this is on inner garments generally, and we get this, the finest material is not spent here. Yet for the priests, there was no off button for the glory and the beauty on everything. And that was one inner garment. Look at the second, the closest. There was a sash. This was like the undergarment for the high priest, the closest to the skin. And as you do think of undergarments, are most often plain and hidden garments. I want you to look at verse 39 and consider that sash. This is the most intimate of garments, and look, it's embroidered with needlework. In other words, yes, the undergarments receive every fine detail as well. Now, as mentioned, those are the pieces for the high priest, all six of those. Again, this was especially the garments for the Day of Atonement when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies. Yet God doesn't leave it there, right? And again, everything is caught in God's Word, so to speak. What you don't see in God's Word is, okay, there's the garb for one day for you people. If you're not in service this year and you're in the courts, have at it, whatever you like. No, you don't have that in God's Word. The final verses in this chapter give pieces for the rest of the priesthood. Those serving in the courtyard daily, the main ministerial attire of the priests, yes, that is prescribed too. They were given these pieces. Look at verse 40. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron your brother and his sons with him and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. 
You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs. And they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place. Lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. The regular common priest, so to speak, as well had, look at it, specified coats, sashes, and caps to wear. They too were clothed. Look at verse 40, and we see it once more. They were clothed for glory and for beauty. They too, as we'll see next week, were, verse 41, anointed, ordained, and consecrated. And just as important for the daily ministerial priests were the undergarments, the linen undergarments. And here, where we see one last difference, it's right here, with Yahweh's priests and pagan priests. And it must be noted, because the text pulls this out. Notice it says there, linen garments to cover their naked flesh. That's Yahweh's priests. Pagan priests had no undergarments. That probably doesn't surprise. Flowing robes with nothing underneath. They very intentionally, as they did their sacrifices and did what they did, twirled around, exposed naked flesh. Not Yahweh. Verse 42, they are what? Covered. All clothing pieces of the priesthood, from the outer to inner, were required of priests, so they brought not just glory and beauty, but what else? Holiness. Holiness. Not more sin while they were so-called atoning for sin. That's not what the priests did. Bring more sin in while they're there to atone for sin. No, God was showing, yes, even in the details, even in the priestly garb, it was complete holiness. You are not of the pagans. Very intentional language here. And that's because the one coming, the great high priest, was just that. There was no need to worry if his sacrifice would be accepted by God. Why? Because his sacrifice was perfect, spotless, without blemish. That is our great high priest. His garments are only pure white. He needs nothing else because he is perfect. And he went in bearing the guilt and the judgment of us. Not as just great high priests, but as the sacrifice to be offered on our behalf. That is our holy God. More on what that meant for these priests as we consider their consecration, their set-apartness next week. That's chapter 29. So we keep this in mind and we look ahead as we'll pick that up next time. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, God, we do consider... Your Son sent, not only as our great High Priest, but the perfect sacrifice. Father, we thank You. We thank You that He is holy. He is perfect. He is good and right. And Lord, His offering of Himself was accepted in Your sight. God, let us be mindful of that as we read of the Levites and the priests and all that you prescribe for them to be fit for your presence, let us be reminded that we are already fit because of Jesus Christ to enter yours. Let us do so now, Lord, you, the only one holy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.